stop mo hello stop mo hello stop mo welcome to hello stop mo an educational limited series created and hosted by me alexis dupre and me casey folan we are here to empower you with introductory knowledge of the stop motion industry to help reduce barriers of entry for newcomers as well as demystify how to navigate this career this podcast is made in partnership with Animation Wildcard and the Ink and Paint Folk podcast. Huzzah! Hello, stop mo. Hello, stop mo. Today on Hello, Stop Mo, we are joined by our friend and stop motion history buff, Seamus Walsh. We'll be doing a basic overview of stop motion history where we highlight some of the filmmakers of note and discuss how those filmmakers interact with technological advancements that impacted the medium. I was first connected with Seamus by one of my instructors, Steve Stanchfield. Steve is an animation historian as well as a professor, and around the end of my time as a student, I was working with Steve at his company, Thunderbean Animation, restoring historic stop-motion films. In the process of that project, Steve introduced me to some other stop-motion history nerds in Los Angeles, and one of those nerds just so happens to be our guest today, Seamus Walsh. Hello, Seamus. Yeah. Hey, nice to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. So excited to have you. <laughs> no, it's good to be here. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Well, yeah, Shay, can you tell us a little just about your background as it relates to stop motion and the topic of history of stop motion? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been in, in fascinated with stop motion ever since I can remember. You know, those are some of my earliest memories. <laughs> my mom says she remembers me running to the uh, TV as soon as that swooping sound of the snow from Rudolph came on every year. So, um, you know, starting from probably five, as early as I can remember, I was just kind of mesmerized by this weird art form, you know, because when you're little, you can't quite figure out how these things are moving. So when you're a kid, that makes a big impact on your imagination. So from the time I was about nine, I was lucky my dad bought a Super 8 camera to film home movies with, and it happened to have a single frame button on it. (laughs) so that's awesome so from the time i was nine i just started filling rolls of film whenever i could afford to go down and buy a roll of film i would just fill it up with weird tests of animation (laughs) (laughs) so anyway yeah and and here i am all these years later somehow surviving doing stop motion (laughs) i think you might be thriving (laughs) (laughs) it's uh it's just the craziest way to try to try to live a life but you know i can't really do anything else but um, I don't know. How, I don't want to bore you guys with like a whole life history or anything. But I'm super passionate about stop motion. Obviously, <laughs> can you tell us about screen novelties? That's a big part of your life. That is a huge part. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, in the '90s, um, I met uh, Mark Caballero in, at some night classes. UCLA was offering these night courses and all sorts of cool film just different types of film disciplines. And I met Mark Caballero there and in a class and we started talking about stop motion animation and how I was obsessed with it and trying to make a movie in my garage. And he came over to help and then suddenly we were like partners making films together. Yeah. And then um, luckily, yeah, so I I didn't go to school for animation. (laughs) Actually was an English major in college. And um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't go to school for animation that end up doing this. Yeah, that's a thing. And you don't, yeah, you don't have to do that. So that that's like should be an inspiring thing for anybody who's listening to this is like, don't get too caught up, you know, in what you should or shouldn't be studying or whatever what you should be is passionate. 
as long as you're passionate, you will find a way. So, um, yeah. So then in the late nineties, Mark and I both took jobs out in New York at MTV animation on a show called celebrity Deathmatch. Mm-hmm. Of course, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And that was like, you know, we always say that was sort of like our boot camp of animation. Before that I had been working for the Kyoto brothers that they're these really hilarious cool guys out in los angeles they're also from they're from new york um, but they Mm -hmm. gave me my first internship back when i was like 20 years old and i was just trying to find a way to do stop motion even though i didn't really think it was possible to do it and so i had been working for them and being able to gain some skills i learned how to you know do foam latex and make molds and do all those kind of like formative things you need to learn how to do to make stop motion films Um, And so that was just great. They were so nice and generous letting me intern for them. And I worked for them for a few years before the job at at Celebrity Deathmatch came along. And that was when we really got to really animate a lot every day, which is that's how we learned was having to churn out animation. That's where we met Chris Finnegan, who became our other partner in our screen novelties venture. (laughs) I call it a venture kind of uh, with a tongue in cheek. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it almost happened accidentally because, you know, when you're wanting to do stop motion, you have these specific ideas about how you want to do it. And the only way you can really do those things that you have in your, like, no one's going to let you do it, you know, somewhere like if you, like when we were working for MTV, I'd have some idea about wanting to try some way of doing a replacement head or doing something. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that on that company's time. So the only way you can try to like get these ideas that are in your head are, I guess, apparently by making your own company to do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> find a way to do it independently. Yeah, so that's how Screen Novelties came about. And we've been doing that since, I think, what, 2004, 2003? We've survived this long somehow. That, thrived I mean, again, thrived. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. And as far as Screen Novelties, I mean, you all seem to be and I say this just having worked there so much like everybody I feel like every other client wants something to look like Rankin and Bass or (laughs) Fleischer Mm -hmm. backgrounds and we'll talk about them more um, Mm -hmm. a little bit later as we get you know talking through the history but it does seem like novelty is in the name like you all know your history and it's kind of part of the fabric of your studio. It definitely is I mean yeah that that's very intentional the whole throwback idea that was like our whole idea getting started was that we love all these old things, but we feel like you can't just regurgitate all these old things that you love. You have to bring something fresh and new to it. So we kind of like Absolutely. have one foot in all the history of it. But then we were always kind of searching for, I, I feel like unless you know the history of the art form you're working in, it's hard to figure out what your contribution to it is going to be. That's a really good way of putting it. So I I mean, I think that's maybe why we got so obsessed because I feel like most of Mark and I, when we were first trying to teach ourselves how to animate and making our own little garage movies, pretty much our whole way of learning was just devouring whatever we could find in the medium, which, you know, is a lot easier now because, yay, we have YouTube. But this was back in like the the mid-90s pre-YouTube days. And uh, so... We would be writing. We'd be writing letters to archives in Canada or the Czech Republic, asking like, "Can we see this Whoa. one film?" And you just have to. It would just be luck if somebody would respond to your inquiry and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, in English, like. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe you're doing like you don't have Google Translate to like. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yeah. <laughs> just just in case whoever opens your letter is you know speaking their native language you know? <laughs> yep yep i know and, and that's, that's the thing you have to send your letters to the cinematech quebecois and so you're like okay i don't Uh-oh. know but th- that's the thing in, in canada well that's the thing <laughs> we're just you know we're just lucky that most of the world also speaks english <laughs> yes this is very true very Weirdos. fortunate yeah, we have a privilege in that yeah but anyway you know that yeah so yeah that's kind of like screen novelties is sort of founded on this basis of love for the history of this art form and you know i i hope we're adding our little chapter yeah so. you're you're a modern you're modern <laughs> what, what's modern historical stop and i don't know um maybe there will be like a name for it it's like postmodernist stop motion yeah. um, <laughs> one day yeah. for all those stop motion historians out there to come up with terms for hello stop mo hello stop mo the thing with talking about the history of animation is talking about it in this like critical context and that people are making films, you know, all throughout, you know, modern history when the film started and they Mm -hmm. can very much be a reflection of their society and their beliefs at that time. And some of these films, the content of them is not necessarily good. (laughs) And it's important to note that. And it's important to watch these to, you know, to know your history and to look at how it's progressing the medium, but also be critical about what the films are saying and how that relates to their place in history and what was going on in in that country at that time or to that filmmaker. Like, yeah. some of these filmmakers ended up making propaganda films for their government because these films were made during wartime or they're perpetuating racist stereotypes that were existent at that time and how that artist was relating to that. So it's important to note it's, you know, it's something that you could talk about over a semester long course. Absolutely. And deep dive into each filmmaker and each film and really look at them through this lens. And that's something mm-hmm. that unfortunately we don't have the resources to do with this podcast, but we encourage people to, if you find a filmmaker that interests you to really learn about them and also learn about where they're making the film and what was going on at that time and not just accept everything in the film as like truth, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to point out, you know, some of how, again, how these films relate to technological milestones and then also to the medium and how that's progressing over time. I think some other way to think about filmmaking, at least, you know, in this modern era is like, it is also a medium that is driven by money Mm -hmm. as with like, you know, art of old times where it's like these beautiful historic paintings and things like they're commissioned pieces. So the artist may or may not be the, the mouthpiece for what they're making, or that may be their personal views. So I think that's also something to just bear in mind. Mm-hmm. That's true. Like the films are made, people who are filmmakers, especially early on, these films were very expensive to make. So either oh, yeah. they're coming from a position of privilege or they're, you know, partnering with maybe other organizations that are helping to fund these things. And that, you know, it's history is written by, you know, who are they written by the winners? Are they written by the people with money? So those not all of these films have survived. Also, that's a really big thing to talk about is that you know, early film Mm. is combustible and Mm, um, melting as we speak, (laughs) (laughs) like literally. So, you know, there are a few people uh, that 
I know of that are racing to get these um, film roles transferred and digitized, mm -hmm. but they're, de you know, degrading and there's only, you know, so much that has made it this far. We mentioned that wars have happened. Archives have mm -hmm. been destroyed over time. So, you know, we can't always talk about everybody that we know made films and we just have, you know, maybe a photo of a still of one of their frames to go off of. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. So it's kind of like this, like oral lore too, <laughs> of like knowing that that person made films at that time, yeah. And having these writings about them that that did stand the test of time, and not necessarily being able to watch the film itself. Good point. Yeah, but I mean that's completely analogous with history in general. Mm -hmm. You know, the things that survive, the Library of Alexandria being destroyed. You know, it's it's just a combination of luck, and politics, mm -hmm. and everything in terms of where we are today. So, you know, we wish every film would have survived from the history start of the medium up till now, but it's just not the way the world works. So we'll uh, sort of yeah. try to piece that history together with the fragments we have left. Yeah. Not to get too dark about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well. it's, it's true. <laughs> It's I true. mean, we're Our, sort of, we're working in like ephemera in a lot of ways. I mean, mm -hmm. there's plenty of actual, you know, physical art that goes into making stop motion as well. And a lot of that is really only made for camera. And that, that could be another podcast in and of itself as well. Yeah, absolutely. But that art really does not get preserved and many times winds up in the dumpster, which is absolutely soul crushing. Yeah. Even current stuff. So it's just that, you know, the film itself is usually what preserves the art intact so if it no longer exists it's not likely that any of it exists yeah very rarely are people fabricating with archival material <laughs> materials no yep. because it doesn't work for camera okay yep. no well anyway <laughs> speaking of the technology behind it we should probably start with just the advent of film and like how that yeah how people discovered this and started to move into stop motion itself because you know obviously we had still film, then we started to make movies, realizing that we could, and like how did like stop motion come about in that process? Yeah, in like the silent right. film era. Yeah. Right. And I, I have a feeling it was probably almost, again, an accident of somebody realizing mm. once they played something back. Like, oh. That was probably an almost accidental discovery, <laughs> you know? Yeah. However, yeah. I don't have any proof of that, but. I mean, it might also be like your childhood memory too, like where you happen to have a still frame on your mm -hmm. film camera and you're like, oh, wow. Oh, I can do this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's an extension of like practical effects in like silent films is this like stop action or stop trick, which is just stopping mm -hmm. the camera and then mm -hmm. changing something and picking back up again. And then, you know, a few people started doing that faster um, that's my understanding of it and kind of how it got to, you know, being something yeah. that, you know, you you take that next frame a little bit faster and turn off the camera a little faster. And, you know, knowing that this just is going to uh, just sort of necessarily be just like the, the briefest of overviews of, of this uh, history, you know, you can kind of look to things like the J. Stewart Blackton stuff like Haunted Hotel, where objects are being animated or there was that thing that they called speed uh, that basically sculptures that were they would do like sort of caricatured facial sculptures in clay and uh kind of just pop between expressions for a very very rudimentary type of stop motion animation and that stuff you know that's from the early early 1900s like pre-1910 
Um, mm-hmm. Those are kind of like the earliest examples we have of of what we would call stop motion. Mm-hmm. And then you don't really get into puppets, stop mo- animating stop motion puppets until people like Ladislaus Sterovich and Willis O'Brien come along around the, the teens, you know, 1912, right. 1914. And that was like taxidermy animation, right? Uh, at first, I think that was yeah. Sterovich. Sterovich is one of my huge animation heroes. Probably anybody huh. who's in stop motion will probably say the same thing but you can tell that tim burton is very um much a, a starovich fan because i feel like he really influenced a lot of the area that tim burton took stop motion but um yeah i think he was a re- the story goes that he was originally an entomologist and he was trying to figure out how to show actions of various beetles and things like that oh. and uh he ended up taking some of the dead ones and experimenting with moving them frame by frame to show the different patterns because it was so hard to to film them. Yeah, yeah to have, try to capture that in nineteen. Yeah, you know, this was probably oh. like nineteen oh eight or nineteen twelve. So I think the first animation he did was with like these desiccated <laughs> insect <laughs> uh, carapaces. Oh but he Gross. did pretty. Yeah, but but he did pretty quickly. You know, because obviously those aren't going to last very long, and you're very limited in what you could do. So he was extremely smart. And um, he's definitely one of the first people, if not the first person, to make full-on puppets using wire and mm-hmm. little bits of sponge and leather and, you know, whatever. He, you, know, prob- you know, probably having learned a bit of, you know, back in the day before television, people learned how to make puppets and do things like that <laughs> as a hobby. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I think he probably knew some, some kind of rudimentary puppet techniques, but then kind of found ways to repurpose those same basic concepts into something that could be animated a frame at a time. So if you Mm -hmm. look at something like the most famous one, the cameraman's revenge, where he had a puppet grasshopper and, and beetles performing these very anthropomorphized human little melodramas, you know, everyone should seek these out because if you're going to be doing stop motion, it's kind of like where it all sort of starts. Yeah. Yeah, It's so good to see even if you're not into the Beatles, you know, <laughs> um, that's the actually, uh, you can, you can like the band. Um, <laughs> but that leads me to a quick tangent. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. a vegan have been and was vegetarian for a very long time before that. And my college studio mate. So we had like a little stop motion studio my senior year that we shared. Um, and she was also a taxidermist. And <laughs> and her films and her, yeah, yeah we are so different. Um, but her films, <laughs> she would you know take you know uh, tools that she had you know uh, which were taxidermy parts and make puppets out of them, which it was done in an ethical way, but it was like polar <laughs> opposites. And I was mm-hmm. always like, I don't know yeah. what's going to be in the studio today. Like, oh, oh no, yikes. <laughs> I feel like it probably just pushed you further to being like, yeah, I definitely cannot eat any little critters. (laughs) I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, she made great animations, though. To each their own. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, you you make puppets out of what you got. (laughs) College is fun. (laughs) Yep. That's where you get all your stories for later on in life. I know. And, you know, share them on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of women in stop motion animation, it is believed that the first woman animator 
came about in 1916, and her name was Helena Smith Dayton. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, at least American. American, yeah. I came across that in an awesome book. Oh, yeah. What book is that? Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation, because they do a pretty good deep dive of just- She worked for Disney? Uh, No. (laughs) They do a pretty good deep dive of how animation came about. There's like a nice little side panel just about her, and I was like, oh, wow. I had no- idea one that it was so early and two that she was one of the pioneers she invented a little short series of clay cartoons she called them and they would air before like you know the films at at the movie theaters yeah and she like made lots of money (laughs) i've only seen little i'm trying to think of even there there's an old book about clay animation i don't think they've survived yeah there's an old Mm -hmm. book about clay animation i'm trying to remember the author's name i'll try to remember it sorry later um was was where i read about her it was called i think it's just called clay animation and from what i remember it was mostly these cool little like caricature sculptures of people dancing and stuff like that yeah but i don't know if i've ever actually seen any um extant Mm -hmm animation by her but i remember seeing stills i haven't even seen any i was just fascinated though so i i tried to find some before this recording and i i don't think that they survive but there are some like photographs that have and there was a lot written about her just because she was i think she was in new york city and she was just you know making money and doing it all she made a lot of money for that time too something like a million (laughs) dollars Cool. I think she was a suffragette. Like, she was awesome. So, definitely somebody to check out. Um, and we'll be putting, as far as like sources and like books to look into and, and, and things mm-hmm. that we found, we'll put those in the mm-hmm. show notes for anybody cool. who wants so, to. So, yeah, that's bit. we're still in the 1920s and we're on the subject of women animators as well. We should talk about Lottie Reiniger. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping everyone who's listening to this knows already who she is because. She's pretty much credited with doing the first feature-length animated film, even though everyone always hears about Snow White, the first feature. I mean, yes, still animated feature, but Lottie Reiniger did it. And, you know, maybe she doesn't get the credit because it was cut out, but it's still animation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, silhouette animation. Um, And I know that feature was the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Prince Ahmed, yep. Yes. And if please... Even if you don't want to start at the very beginning and watch, you know, humorous faces and funny faces in the haunted hotel, <laughs> you should at the very least start with Prince Ahmed because it is one of the most beautiful things ever made. Yeah, and she made a lot of a lot of other mm-hmm. projects too, but the, a lot of them did use that like silhouette animation technique, which is like an extension of silhouette mm-hmm. puppet theater. I would assume, and people still use that technique today. Mm-hmm. Totally, and she did multiplane setup like. I think before Disney did it. Probably. I mean, that's technically a stop motion setup. It is. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and, and again, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes here, but I, I, to me, stop motion is is any form of animation where you're manipulating physical objects in front of a lens, a frame at a time. That means, I mean, silhouette animation is absolutely, it's a very pure form of, of stop motion animation. And you know, and people sort of took that. There's people like uh, Michelle Osolo and even like Evelyn Lambert and people like that that kind of took that later on in the century and ran even, you know, I wouldn't say ran further because Lottie Reiniger's work is as good as you're going to get. But there's people who kept that tradition alive, yeah, up to now, 
like you were saying, Lex. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually where we've been calling out little like vocab words Mm -hmm. that come up that make a lot of sense to us, but might not make a lot of sense to everyone. Um, And multi-plane animation or down shooter animation is one of them. And that's just the idea of instead of, you know, putting your camera on tripod on a tripod and shooting forward, you're shooting usually down. And then you have these um, panes of glass that are clear and then you can layer, you know, with paper cutouts or anything really on that glass so that they're not interacting with each other. um, And you have a little bit more freedom of movement. It kind of looks like a little bookshelf of of glass. Mm-hmm. So you have like multiple layers as as if they're like shelves, like a shadow box. Yeah, and you can also just Google multiplane camera, and you'll see a bunch of images. And as soon as you see a photo, you'll be like, "Oh, yeah, makes yeah, total sense. yeah." And it can help with like just not fighting gravity as much if if you do it in a in a mm-hmm. down shooter versus um, straight on setup. Would you say that the like late nineteen twenties is kind of the end of a certain chapter? Sort of, because I feel like that's where you start to get out the in you know, the nineteen hundreds to nineteen twenties, it's still the very much experimentation figuring out that oh we can do this Mm -hmm. (laughs) this technique the technique is Mm -hmm. kind of like being figured out over the course of that 20 years or so and then it kind of culminates in the late 20s with uh people like Sterovich and Wilson O'Brien and Herbert Dolly and people like that kind of figuring out how to make puppets posable and do character animation and by by the end of the 1920s um, but then when you get into the early 1930s, that's kind of like the shift of where it becomes like a real medium. Not that there was that many people even still doing it then, but where that's where people like George Powell and then Willis O'Brien also kind of like pulling it out from a novelty into creating real character animation. Hello, stop. Hello, stop mo. Yeah, so should we talk kind of about that transition from the 20s of animation, stop motion, novelty into full-on stories and characters and storytelling medium? Let's do it. Totally, yeah. I mean, I feel like definitely when you're talking about the early 1930s, George Powell comes to mind because he, this is one of the main technological advances because, you know, stop motion as you traditionally think of it is a single puppet that you're posing frame by frame and going through straight ahead and animating. But George Powell had this idea of wanting to free himself of the constraints of one puppet and be able to get a more of a um, kind of a squashy, stretchy sort of a feel that you would be seeing in cartoons of the late 20s and early 1930s. He kind of got that feeling of a squash and stretch of drawings by creating replacement parts or sometimes entire replacement puppets of characters. So the early 1930s is kind of where the idea of replacement animation comes to prominence. Mm -hmm. Which is also still used today. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's like, and we'll talk about this later, getting into like the, or I guess we probably already touched on it, which is like the replacement faces of some more modern stop motion and that being replacement animation. So it's basically, and it's not limiting you to the existing puppet or form that you have. So each frame, you can make a change to the actual model that you're working with. And George Powell did it with yeah. like the whole puppet. And it sounds insane. And it, it is. <laughs> um, it is totally insane. Especially yeah. then. Because at that point, they're not able to play back nope. their And animation. that's one of the technological advancements we'll talk about later but (laughs) yeah yes well that's the thing he would draw it all out first on paper and test it and make Uh sure the cycle worked 
And then he would have all these artisans with a bunch of jigsaws or bandsaws and lathes kind of create the shapes. And because of that, he kept his designs of his puppets quite simple. They were very geometric because, you know, it's too much work. It's already so much work just to make one puppet, but he kind of, the legs were usually these rectangular forms and the bodies were kind of like these oblong oval shapes. And it sounds very rudimentary, but his designs are very imaginative and really charming and, and just appealing designs because of their simplicity. Yeah, he's able to keep things simple, yeah. yeah. So I would definitely encourage, you know, looking up the origins of replacement animation. He was kind of, I'm sure there were other people besides him um, experimenting with it. I think there's some Russian tests that I've seen from the 20s and stuff there where they're actually utilizing replacements, but kind of George Powell really took it and ran with it took, yeah he took it to a really high level that i i feel like hasn't really even been touched again since he kind of stopped doing it in the 40s <laughs> yeah people making puppets but i mean yeah it has a charm to it that mm-hmm. simplicity for sure yeah we, we should probably also talk about willis o'brien around the same time because 1933 is when mm-hmm. king kong comes out and in terms of in terms of stop motion milestones and that's why that's why it's so fun to talk about both of those people and and the technique at the same almost simultaneous within like a few years of each other yeah i mean it's like they're it's concurrent they're contemporaries but they're doing wildly different things with the art form and that's just what i love about this art form you know same yeah can do Mm -hmm. so much yeah so you know willis o'brien in the in the teens and early 20s and stuff had been making you know puppet films but in the you know after making the lost world which is kind of like the first big special effects movie with dinosaurs in it they were able to get funding to do king kong which we won't even go into there's so much we could go into about king kong there's a lot there yeah but this is where you kind of get that dichotomy also of you know george pal and starovich doing puppet films and Mm -hmm. then Willis O'Brien doing using stop motion as a special effect, blending it in with live action, um, using techniques like mm-hmm. rear projection um, and split screens. So again, if you're going to go for your next milestone, it really <laughs> you really have to watch the original 1933 King Kong because that's pretty much the big early milestone that everyone, even the general public, sort of knows about with stop motion. And that like lays the groundwork for a lot of stuff after that point too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's so much in between those, you know, two filmmakers that there's just a lot of room for for other people. Yeah, to I mean, there's work. yeah, and that's the thing. There's not a lot a lot of time to talk about everything. We that we could go down different pathways about mm-hmm, all totally. that stuff, but we're giving you the overview. And now, using all these things, especially because we have the internet, now you can once you start googling these things, you will the algorithms will lead you on <laughs> Just to give you a zillion other discoveries yeah the next thing that i get excited about is max Fleischer, which i don't even have a full picture of, <laughs> of that work but you know i just have these like cherished memories of somewhere in dreamland and christmas comes about once a year but mm-hmm. i also know that you have cherished memories about them and have even put them in work for screen and was very exciting <laughs> when you noticed could see that call out in elf (laughs) (laughs) that's right umbrella trees (laughs) yay you win the prize for noticing that little Fleischer tribute i win the nerd prize (laughs) yeah totally 
Yeah, no, yeah, we 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 did a little umbrella Christmas tree made of umbrellas in in the Elf special that we did for Warner Brothers, and that was our little yeah our little nod. Uh, elf, yeah, buddies me so Christmas. Yes, the animated retelling from the hit live action Warner Brothers movie. The animated one's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun one. Casey, I, isn't that? That's what I when I first worked for you. That's yeah, so it's funny. Anchor. Yep, I remember it well. Baby Casey. I think that's when my husband first worked for you too. That's right. Yep. Yeah. No, that was, was that the first thing that Scott and I worked on together? I think, I think so. Cause he was yeah. telling me he was just coming in to do some poses and you guys set him up on a lunchbox, which we'll also talk about later. Oh yeah. Um, and he was, he, he was like, uh, <laughs> oh, how do I use this? <laughs> because at that point everyone was working with dragon frame, which is again, much later we'll talk about that because these that's are both so cool. big technological advancements oh that's awesome yeah yeah and i mean that's the thing is like you know the fleischer backgrounds from the 30s like those come up all the time mm-hmm. as references for you know what people want out of modern right. stop motion oh absolutely they're so cool they're real works of art and the funny thing is you know this is the story I understand about those, which is pretty funny, is that because Walt Disney had kind of patented the multiplane technique, <gasps> no other animation studios could use it without what? getting busted. So, of course, here's the thing. Max Fleischer, absolute genius. Max and Dave Fleischer, the Fleischer brothers. I mean, I could go on a whole rant about how much I love these guys. But, yeah, so from what I understand, the, the turntable miniature model sets that the Fleischers made were a way of getting dimension into their backgrounds without running afoul of the plat- patents on the multiplane camera. That's so crazy. And also, like we said, the multiplane we now refer to as a downshooter in stop motion. So it's like a very critical stop motion tool. Yeah. And that's what's funny is that, well, it's cool because they couldn't try to just ape that mm-hmm. that technique. They came with came up with this entirely other built beautiful yeah. artistic way of doing it that wouldn't have survived without you know it, they always talk about necessity is the mother of invention this is a prime example of it and it's just its own really unique look i mean everyone should go out there and it, you know just type into youtube fleischer color classics not very many good prints of them exist sadly but if you keep your eyes peeled in the backgrounds you you know you'll see 2d animation but then Every once in a while, they'll pop up with these beautiful model sets as their backgrounds. And they're they're just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I'm specifically thinking of Somewhere in Dreamland where it's just like basically a big cake. Yeah. And like, it's just, everything is just like, you just want to like go lay in it and maybe eat it. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, man. They're really lush for for being the 30s. (laughs) Yes. That one's the, the Somewhere in Dreamland in particular is the one that's like, the most gangbusters blowing the lid off everything because a lot of times they would kind of pepper them in where they could but that one's really just a showcase for the model sets throughout the entire entire thing if you get a chance you should watch some of the popeye cartoons like uh popeye meets sinbad the sailor okay that one has Mm. amazing model sets in it i had no idea I didn't have that VHS, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a few Betty Boops and Popeyes where they use the same technique. But the Fleischer Color Classics were kind of like specifically made to showcase the, the, the model sets were kind of like the big gimmick of the Color Classics. So almost every Color mm-hmm. Classic you'll watch has at least 
one or two, if not more model sets oh, in it. So That's much so cool. to check out with the, the Fleischers. For yeah, sure. with all this info, you're going to have years of searching <laughs> and devouring stuff to, you know, and that's good because that every, anytime you see something new, it'll get your creative juices re-energized and you'll want to get out and make something. Yeah, totally. And even like as you're, you know, progressing in your own stop motion, going back and looking at these things with fresh eyes with like where you're at at that time, you like see mm-hmm. and notice mm-hmm. new things that maybe, you know, before you were more, you know, looking at the big picture versus now that you have a handle on the, you know, stop motion a little bit more, you can, you can see more and kind of appreciate different things about them. So you're always kind of kind of see something new. Yes. We are going to pause our stop motion history conversation with the Fleischers today. In our next episode, we'll pick up where we left off with Seamus in the 1940s and 50s. Thank you for listening to this episode of the educational limited series, Hello Stop Mo made in partnership with Animation Wildcard and the Ink and Paint Folk podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for any additional resources mentioned in this episode. And please subscribe, rate, and review to help us reach more listeners. Thanks to Ellen Coons and Lee Young for the music in this episode. This series is created and hosted by me, Alexis Dupre. And me, Casey Bolin. And produced by me, Cassie Soliday. To learn more about the people behind this podcast, find us online. You can find me, Casey Folan, at CatalystCastleStudios.com or at CatalystCastleStudios on Instagram. You can find me, Alexis Dupre, at Threadwood.com or at underscore Threadwood on Instagram and at Threadwood on TikTok. And you can find me, Cassie Soliday, at Cassassi.com or at Cassie Soliday on Instagram and Twitter. You can find out more about the partners behind this podcast at animationwildcard.com and at animationwildcard on Instagram and YouTube. And the Ink and Paint Folk podcast is wherever you listen to podcasts and at Ink and Paint Folk on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Hello Stop Mo. Bye! Bye. Hello Stop Mo. Hello Stop Mo.